of fish. It actually is the caption of one of the cartoons that my great uncle Ab drew, and it's one that leapt out at me when I first saw it. Do you want me to show it to you, Judy? I do. Okay. Yes. Oh, um, oh, we almost found it there straight away. There you see. You can tell it's one of his later drawings because it's in colour. Lovely. It's not a cartoon. It's a beautiful little sketch. It's three people in... They seem to be in an office. And she is pouring a thermos mask. That's right. Well, actually, the story is that yes. they're in a place called Knapsbury Hospital. Mm -hmm. The young man there in the brown suit is my cousin Larry, and he was disabled. These days, we would say that he had autism. He also had epileptic seizures. And at the time, he was institutionalised in this place called Knapsbury Hospital. And in this particular drawing, you can see that my uncle Ab and my auntie Celie have come to visit him. And like maybe lots of families, but I think particularly... Jewish families, will bring catering to anybody in hospital. Yep. And I always say you can tell the Jewish people in the hospital by the smell of fish coming from the bed. <laughs> um, this time, of course, they've forgotten the fish, and Larry's saying, what, no fish, which makes me think that every week they used to probably bring up the gefilte fish or whatever was left from Shabbos as a kind of picnic for him, because presumably he wasn't fed properly in a hospital. Mm. Who is? And they look a bit like my parents. The lady is, in fact, my mum's aunt, Celie, and my mum looks a lot like her auntie. So they look like my mum and dad. But Celie is the recipient of these wonderful cartoons. That's right. Uncle Ab would religiously draw a cartoon on the back of his wage packet every week, and he'd give it as a kind of love letter to Celie, with something important that's happened in the week. So this late one that we're looking at now is quite sad, but of course... At the beginning, when he was... I'll show you, he was just doing um, doodles. Oh, gosh, they're much more sketchy, aren't they? They are. You can yeah. see very early ones. Mm. He's just drawn... I'm showing you, Judy, one of these early ones mm. where he's, he's just drawn a pot, a pan and a brush, and that's it, mm. as a little doodle. And presumably that's how he started. And gradually they became more fully realised pieces of art. Mm. But he somehow felt compelled every week to give her a piece of art with her housekeeping money. Fantastic, because this one here is just a little heart, so that's all very loving, but there's a little scene here. What's it, the, what's it say underneath? That says, the bazaar. Ah, the bazaar. Rue de Ridd. Mm. So it's something in France? No, no it's not. Ridley it's, Road. It's, it's Ridley Road. Road. I'd be so ridiculous. This is, this is Uncle Ab <laughs> making funny, a funny, yeah. and he was a very mm. funny man. Yeah. And there's Auntie Celie. At the stalls. At the stalls. This will be before they had the kids, so this will be 1926 mm. oh or 1927. <laughs> And actually, for those of us who still shop in Ridley Road every mm. week, it hasn't changed that much no, no. in its personality in terms of being one of the liveliest markets. And in fact, even when they'd made the big trip as a family to the Promised Land, like so many East End Jews did, that is, get to Golders Green from Dalston, <laughs> <Of course. laughs> they still returned back mm. to base. I th Auntie mm. Celia every week would come back and... I think on her probably during the day on a Friday mm. and buy her chicken and her fish for Shabbos and all that kind of thing and go back to Ridley Road. She would never have used, you know, the local shops in Golders Green. She was addicted to the market. Mm. Well, it's sort of Jewish continuity and London continuity, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, it's one of those stories. It's a specifically Jewish story, but also actually has resonances for so many people and so many people who come from 
immigrant families. Yes, so just to go your phrase wage packet, you mean the housekeeping? He gave her the housekeeping with the description. That's that right. I mean, mean? I mean, there's lots of gaps in the story. I don't know really what happened. I can only surmise. But the way I see it is that this was a little business that he ran himself. He would have made wage packets up for maybe a couple of guys who worked for him. And I think what he did was he made a little wage packet up with the housekeeping for Celie and gave it to her. So on the back of it, he did these oh, drawings. Oh, come on, look, these are fantastic. This is obviously meant to be a picture of Auntie Celie saying the blessing over the Shabbat candles, yeah. and then next to it, they're actually doing the blessing of the wine. Yes. When I first saw this picture, I, I don't know about you, Judy, but I've never been present, as I say, tonight, with Passover service with just two people. And actually through their lives at different points, there's pictures of them, just the two of them, Are doing a whole Seder. Because oh, that's right. a Haggadah. You're right. It's not a Friday it's not night. not a Friday night. She's holding she, a Passover Haggadah. Absolutely right. It says yeah. Haggadah on the front of the book. But it's lovely. He's got his hat on because he'd have to have his head covered. He would. And you can see the candles and the bottle of wine. It, but it's just the two of them, as you say. Just quite the two strange. of them. They were, I think, quite a religious family. Certainly, I'm told that the Uncle Ab in his retirement went to shul every day. Went to synagogue every yeah. day. Yeah. How important do you think the fact that these are cartoons, they show a vibrant Jewish life, but a, a practising Jewish life? It's not just cultural, is it? No, I, I mean, it seems to me that the structure of the Jewish week and the Jewish year was very important to Uncle Ab and, and to Celie. He drew these pictures every week. I like to think he drew them on a Thursday because I think that's when he would have got paid. And I think it was his way of saying, you know, this is nearly Shabbos, here's your money. You can go and spend it on a Friday for Friday night dinner and then we have a day of rest. And equally with the yearly Seder as well, I think there was a lot of resonance for him and the family in the Passover story. And I think, in a way, part of his religiosity was drawing a picture every week, no matter what. It was part of the structure and the ritual of his life. I haven't reckoned on till I met you was that she herself would be in so many of the cartoons. Yes. I mean, they are little vignettes of their life together, aren't they? I think so. I mean, she was kind of his muse. It's almost a Beauty and the Beast story. You know, she was a very beautiful woman, and I think he himself would have described himself, if you use the Yiddish words, a bit of a schlump. <laughs> but she was always trying to tidy him up. He was maybe a little coarser than uh, the aspirations of some members of the family. Celia's sister, Lily, was my grandmother, mm -hmm. and she was a very demanding woman, and she certainly didn't like the fact that her youngest sister had married this coarse schlump from across the road. <laughs> so you actually get Lily appearing later on. Oh, hang on, there's one oh. here with actually in bed together. Mm. Oh, there's quite a lot of them in, in bed mm. together. It's quite <laughs> saucy. I do two versions of the show, Judy. I do one version which is a little bit censored for kids, because there is actually quite a lot of sex in the show. Because he drew them in bed together and quite often double entendres. I mean, these pictures are the war years. And during the war, they're very often in bed together. And Ab sort of draws the bed a bit like it's a battleground in itself. My favourite kind of, I wonder if I can find it here, a sort of slightly saucy one from the war years. Uncle Ab draws himself in the bath. Now, the bath only has a tiny, tiny dribble of water of course, in it because that's water, water rationing. Yeah. And Auntie Seal is holding a ruler, 
Um, now, you're only allowed five inches of water in a bath once a week. Auntie Celia's holding a mirror and saying... And Auntie Celia's saying, I'm sure it's only four and three-quarter inches. Mm, I don't suppose you put that in the kids' toilet. Well, sometimes I do, but I just <laughs> wink at the teachers and the ten-year-olds wouldn't get the double entendre. But, but of course, they will learn something about water rationing during the walk. Well, and a lot of them wouldn't have known that, you know, so... And it's on their syllabus and on the curriculum and all the rest of it. So they get a different view of a kind of social history mm. of what's going on in the war. But underneath it, you know, I suppose one of the themes of the show for me, there's quite a lot of food in it, quite a lot of catering, and that smell of fish lingers mm. through the show one way or other. And I don't know about you, Judy, but I've always had a real passion for crane. Yes, yes. Crane, yes. for those people who don't know, is the horseradish and beetroot sauce. I can actually spoon it into my mouth, yeah, almost without the filter fish that's supposed to be. Real Jews just take it yeah. neat. Yeah. Always, for me, crane kind of sums up... Mm. The Jewish experience, but it also, in a way, sums up Ab's attitude because it's sweet at the same time as being bitter, mm -hmm. but also it's indestructible. You get it on a tablecloth, you'll never get it out. It stains everything. So I kind of like to think that we as a people, and Uncle Ab is saying that whatever happens, the bitter and the sweet are wrapped up in one moment and we are indestructible. That's kind of the... <laughs> crane is the theme of the show, really, in many ways. <laughs> about this show that takes many forms and many shapes because it isn't a set in stone sort of a show it's not one where you could show me the script you can only show me the pictures that just give me some idea of what people are in for and what are they yeah. going to see what are they going to hear I mean I, I call it storytelling but it works a little bit like stand-up can work sometimes in that it depends upon the audience in front of me and we'll have a conversation but there is a story and and I'll tell it so, for example, as, as I was saying, sometimes I'd, I'll work with children and it may be a bit shorter. Some of them won't understand references, so that will need explaining. Like Crane. Like Crane. I've done an audience which is entirely Jewish, where, of course, you don't have to explain what a Passover service is. Mm. I've done Jewish schools where they might understand a lot about Jewish custom and tradition as it's coming through the pictures but wouldn't necessarily understand the historical background and some of those things need explaining. So I just test the audience and hopefully they start a, a little bit of a dialogue with me and, and with each other. And sometimes I will find out something a bit new about a picture or by their observations and, and how they'll mm. see it. So it's more a dialogue than just you talking at people then? Yes, yes, I think so. It varies, I suppose, depending upon where the audience is, but I, I try and take them through the emotional journey of the story so we don't just sit down and chat. No, so there's an emotional story to do with you, the story behind the cartoons and your relationship with the cartoons and with your great-uncle and aunt, is that right? That's right. I won't uh, spoil it for people, but... There are a series as we go through the story. It's really the story of me going through this box of cartoons, finding out about the family that I knew but didn't know that well, and I get to know them a bit better. And there's some remarkable coincidences and amazing finds. There were 3,000 of these cartoons, Judy. I mean, they were remarkably not lost. They were under our son Jeff's bed, for 20 plus years between when Ab died and when Jeff died and then my mum being the only surviving relative cleared out his flat and came just back with this crate this hidden treasure really and they were all higgledy-pickledy the whole thing was chaotic and then I went through and made a story out of it and was very surprised by what I found and how it connected to my life really. 
I'm looking at a book in a very intimate setting with you, but obviously in a performance we're going to see them writ large, aren't we? That's right. One of the things we've developed as the show's gone on, I've been working with my director who's called Nick Philippou, and, and Nick's idea was wouldn't it be great if we could find a way that we could take the real artefacts, not use something like a PowerPoint presentation, but use these real small pieces of art, and if we could in some way blow them up so that the audience could see them really clearly, could see the detail on them, as if they were right next to them. Then shortly after that, I was talking to a teacher friend of mine saying, I wish I could solve this problem. They said, have you come across a thing called a visualiser? And a visualiser is a wonderful new contraption that is a sort of modern version of an overhead projector. It looks like an angle poise lamp. And so I can now sit at a table and take each of the pictures I want to show the audience out of a box. Let's put some white gloves on so as not to damage the pictures and then place them almost like a specimen under a microscope under this contraption called a visualiser. And it's a very good quality digital camera, in fact, and it then projects pretty much life-size onto a screen so people can really see the art clearly and it's very like the experience we've got here that you can scrutinise them intimately. We're having this meeting in Dalston and you still live down this way, don't you? Now that it's actually become quite gentrified, but you, you live here and they live round here, is that right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, that's one of the coincidences. And, you know, I sometimes wonder what they would make of it now. Of course, there are some things that are still very similar. As I say, Ridley Road probably has the same feel to it that it did when they shot there. But I'm not sure what they'd make of, you know, the £2 million houses and the, <laughs> and the hipsters who come up and the club nights and all the rest of it. And of course, it's a very mixed community, which I love now. People of all backgrounds. Our house has four flats in it and we're a kind of Jewish-Irish household. But we have a South African household, we have a Ugandan household and we have a Turkish household all in the same house now. Whereas in, in their day, from my understanding, with the, particularly those streets around Sandringham Road and St Mark's Road and St Mark's Rise and so on, this was an almost entirely Jewish area back in the 20s and 30s. So I do wonder what they would have made of it. In fact, my grandmother, who was brought up on Sandringham Road in Dalston, when I moved back 25 years ago, and I said to her, oh, guess where I'm living? She said it took us three generations to move out. What the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> Oh, everybody will, as you get older, you will certainly sympathise with this one. This road goes uphill both ways. That's them as Darby and Joan going up the road. Yeah, isn't it? And I leave that till last. That's my favourite picture, and that's the one I leave the audience with. Mm -hmm.